The sermon text this morning is found in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We wrapped up our series on First uh, Timothy last week. Our Advent series for the Christmas season begins in three weeks, if you can believe that. And so for these in-between Sundays, three of them, we're doing a short series on Christian discipleship. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple is, is a learner or a follower of someone else. Uh, you learn from their teaching, you, you follow their life. As those who have been completely forgiven of our sin and made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now his disciples. We, we march with a new master. We don't follow our hearts, we follow Christ. And so now, resting in the assurance of his love for us, the grand undertaking of our lives is to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. So our anchor verse in thinking through this series is from Deuteronomy, uh, but it's cited in three of the Gospels. For example, Luke chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. So the terms, they just stack up one upon the other. Growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ is holistic. Loving God demands all of you, your heart and your mind and your actions. Of course, these three cannot be separated. They're all interconnected, uh, but it can still be helpful to understand the whole by studying the parts. And so this morning, I want to focus on our actions as Christians, our, our doing. You might say, you know, aren't you putting the cart before the horse? Uh, wouldn't it be better to look at the heart of the disciple first, or, or perhaps his thoughts about God before you look at his external deeds? Well, you got a good argument there. Um, but I you remember last week, we finished up 1 Timothy with this call to be rich in good works. So we're linking up with that by looking this morning at our labor in the Lord, our, our actions, our, our doing. Uh, we've been called to love God with all our strength, with all our might. I do want to say if abounding in the work of the Lord is not fueled by a sincere love for Christ based on a true knowledge of him and his grace, well, that's just empty moralism. It's just a shell game. Right? It's just outward performance, and that is very dangerous. So Tom, he's going to look at the heart next Sunday, and then Philip, he'll preach on loving God uh, with all our minds the following Sunday. So this morning, our focus is doing. 
want to zero in on verse 58. Let me read that. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Danielle read the previous seven verses because verse 58 doesn't come out of nowhere, uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, what is the work of the Lord? And then we'll look at who does this work. And then lastly, what, what motivates this work? Okay, first, so let's define this work of the Lord, this labor that Paul calls the Corinthians to be about. If you cast your eyes down to chapter 16, verse 10, you'll find the exact same phrase. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Well, what were these men doing? They were preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ and then gathering these new Christians into churches Encouraging the saints, building them up in the faith, protecting them from false teaching. They were making disciples. They they were carrying out the great commission. This is the mission of the church. And it's really important we keep that crystal clear in our minds that the mission of the church is primarily spiritual in nature. Winning people to Christ and then building them up in Christ through the proclamation of the word. Church should not be swayed from this. Now, does that mean churches should not have food pantry ministries or classes for uh, English classes for refugees or they shouldn't support crisis pregnancy centers? Of course not, not at all. There are many good God-glorifying reasons a local church may decide to be involved in these things, but, but the central obligation of the church is to preach the gospel and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The church is to herald a particular message that the, na- the nations, they're not gonna hear this anywhere else. So this is our, 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 our primary calling to establish men and women as followers of Christ. So when Paul speaks of the work of the Lord, th- this is the bullseye he's aiming at. This is the emphasis. He says earlier in the chapter, verse one, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. He says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul considers this message verbally proclaimed to be of first importance, that Christ died for our sins and was raised. And he tells the Corinthians that this good news is the message by which they are being saved. So now again, just because something is most important doesn't mean that everything else is meaningless. No, not at all. The work of the Lord may have a particular emphasis, but that doesn't mean all other good deeds are just a distraction from the mission. No, in this fallen world, there are countless needs to be met, innumerable opportunities to love and to bring aid in the name of Christ. So it might be helpful here to distinguish between the mission of the church and the personal ministries and activities of church members. 
right? So Christ Covenant Church, corporately speaking, simply can't address or try to advance every ministry need, nor, nor should we. But individual members, uniquely wired and gifted, should fan out into the community and seek to be a light for Christ in, in all kinds of ways. So when a ministry opportunity is, is presented to uh, the leadership here, you know, we've, we've got to stop and think. Uh, will doing this activity and spending our resources on it help us further our central mission? Is it at least in the direction of our mission or is it less so? Well, this is a, it's a wisdom call, right? So I'd ask you to pray for our new pastor, Mark Carrington. He'll, he'll be with us uh, next Sunday. Adam mentioned him and his family and his prayer. Uh, Mark is gonna be heading up our missions efforts at the church and so as he works with the missions team in coordination with the elders, uh, these are the kinds of questions they're fielding so we can, we can steward our time and our resources well as a church. John Piper, preacher, theologian, he said this, we Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Now that just might strike the right balance. Both phrases are true. You know, we shouldn't feel torn between the two. We do care about all suffering, or we should. And we shouldn't close our eyes to the plight of the world, the sick and the fatherless, and the hungry, the refugee, you know, there's some in the church today that uh, they think if you get too involved in, quote, social concerns, you, you, you might be going liberal. And I want to say, well, just hang on a minute. We're Christians. This is what Christians do. These are the kinds of ways we have served for 2,000 years. So we don't ignore suffering when we see it. But neither should we lose sight of the primacy of the real spiritual need that people have. We shouldn't feel too refined to talk about hell. If, if we know our friends are headed to certain destruction, love demands that we speak to them about Christ. So the work of the Lord should encompass both declaration and demonstration, motivated by the love of God. The Apostle John says we love because he first loved us. So you look at the very next sentence uh, in the text, chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. So here's a bit of demonstration right here. Uh, there was a famine in Jerusalem, a great famine that covered the whole region. People were in danger of starving. And so Paul is urging these Gentile Christians in Corinth to, to come to the aid of their needy Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So talk about a counter-cultural display of Christian love. You know, the world at the time was accustomed to, to Jews helping fellow Jews. Here we have Gentile Christians helping their Jewish brothers and sisters. So he tells them, set aside a bit of money each week, and so when I get there, the gift will be ready, and, and we can take it, take it to Jerusalem. So surely this was part of what Paul meant by abounding in the work of the Lord. We, we, we have a gospel to declare and a gospel to adorn with good works. It's what, again, it's what Christians do, right? We bear fruit by the power of the Spirit. Apples grow on apple trees, figs grow on fig trees, good works grow on Christians. 
And these works, they don't save us. They don't save us, but they do evidence that God has saved us. So because of the new nature given us by the Spirit, loving and serving others should be a kind of spiritual reflex. So in his letter to Titus, Paul says the redeemed are a people zealous for good works. He writes in Galatians, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Such helpful language there, as we have opportunity. So Tom has talked recently, past few months, I've heard him mention it a couple times, this idea of moral proximity. I can't, we can't do everything. We're, we're not Jesus, right? Uh, we, we can't love our brothers in Asia the same way we can love one another right here. And so the question is, how can I steward my life to do the most good that I can? You know, immediately, my my family, first of all, uh, my my church members, uh, my my neighbors, my community, my city. So there's these concentric circles that that go out. You've probably never heard of the name Robert Chapman, but he was actually one of the most influential Christians of 18th century England. He was a humble pastor, kept a very low profile. He didn't seek the spotlight whatsoever. Uh, Nevertheless, one writer says Chapman became legendary in his own time for his gracious ways, his patience, his kindness, his balanced judgment, his ability to reconcile people in conflict, his absolute fidelity to scripture, and his loving pastoral care. Now, more prominent men that that you probably have heard of, Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, uh, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, they all sought the counsel of Robert Chapman. They loved him. They revered him. Spurgeon called him uh, the saintliest man I ever met. I was reading about him, and I was struck by one little fact. So he had guests frequently over to his house uh, to spend the night, and it, they would, they would find their shoes cleaned the next morning, sitting outside their door, waiting for them. He once told a friend, my business is to love others, not to seek that others love me. Now that just might change your life. I think it might shut down most of social media, but that would change your life. The Bible says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you just stop and and think about that for a moment. Before the foundation of the world, God prepared particular good deeds for you to do. Find them out, lean into them, carry them out with all your might. Jesus taught us it is more blessed to give than to receive. That means there's more joy in giving than in receiving. So our hearts, they have to be trained in this, don't they? I wonder what storehouses of joy might be yours if you learned to give your life away for the sake of other people. Jesus said we gain our lives by losing them. The vast majority of our labor for the Lord will not be on the national stage, it won't be in the spotlight, but in quiet, ordinary conversations with your neighbor next door. Or caring for each other by bringing a meal and a listening ear, 
visiting someone in the hospital and praying with them, persevering in the hard work of parenting, living out your your faith in Christ before your children, sitting with someone who's grieving, explaining the gospel to a coworker over lunch, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Note that word always. So there's no retirement age in this line of work. Until our final breath, hand to the plow, no looking back. Now who is called to this work? Who does this work? I hope it's clear by now that this, this is for all of us. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Paul says. So he's addressing the entire church in Corinth. And I wanted to draw this point out because we often fall into thinking that uh, the work of the Lord is, is, is for pastors, right? That, that counseling stuff, that, that evangelism stuff, that teaching stuff, that one-on-one discipleship, that's their job. That is not biblical at all. Ephesians chapter four. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So pastors are more like coaches than they are players on the field. Doesn't mean we're hanging out on the sidelines twiddling our thumbs. No, we we are in the work. Uh, Sweat is on the brow. But our role is to equip you for this ministry of making disciples, of deliberately doing spiritual good to one another. I like how one author put it. Discipling is prayerfully speaking the word of God to one another. How are you doing in this work? We've already established that this is a full-orbed work. It's both declaration and demonstration. Where is your weak point? Who are you talking to? Who are you serving? Who has come to know God better because of your sacrificial investment in their life? If you just think back, you know, who has done this for you? Just, just imitate their life. Whatever they did, just copy it. Paul said, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. So you think back, you know, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, he would always seek me out, ask me how I was doing, ask me how he could be praying for me. Or that guy, he would always pick me up and take me to Bible study. Or I remember listening to that friend pray for her children. There, there was such pleading in her voice. We're discipling each other. You think of, um, maybe there was a friend who, who met with you. He would meet with you. You'd read the Bible, he'd ask you a few questions, you'd talk about it, and then you'd pray. You can do that, you can do that for someone else. Now, if what I just described, that little vignette, if that sounds completely terrifying, completely beyond your ability, and and yet you're drawn to it at the same time, would you please come talk to me? I, I would love to help you with this ministry. This is what we want at our church, to have a culture of disciple making, that it's just normal, we're seeking each other out pointing each other to the word, bearing each other's burdens. Now, Paul calls for steadfastness. So clearly, the work of the Lord that all of us are to be doing will be resisted. Uh, We we battle with our own selfish desires. We're confronted with the sins and weaknesses of other people. Uh, The devil is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. 
and we live in a fallen world where the curse still plays out in all of its devastation. And so much of our work at, at times, it, it seems to fall on deaf ears. It, it's hard to see if we're making any difference at all. I was talking to Flomo. Uh, he was here in the first service, and he said it, so often he, he just sees the ingratitude. He's working as unto the Lord, and, and yet there's, there's no gratitude coming back. We, we, know, we know what that feels like. What motivates us to press on in this labor? He says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now that's a concluding statement to an argument that Paul has been making for the entirety of the chapter. What is chapter 15 all about? It's about the resurrection of Christ and his coming return when his people will be resurrected as well. That's why our work is not futile. The Lord will return and the dead in Christ will rise. He says, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul uses that little phrase, in the Lord or in Christ, over 160 times in his letters. It's a massive theme in in the New Testament. Our union with Christ by faith. So to be in the Lord, to be in Christ, means that Christ is your representative. You, You are so tied to him that when he died, you died as well. When he was buried, you went into that grave as well. And when he rose from the dead, you did too. All that is his is yours. His victory over sin and death and hell is yours. You've got to meditate on this. So even your body will be restored. Or I should say it will be glorified. We will one day be indestructible, imperishable. Because that's the kind of body Jesus has right now, reigning in the heavens, even as I speak. That's how closely Jesus identifies with you. I heard a preacher in Kentucky one time, he had a deep southern accent, and he said, if a man came in here right now with a machine gun and blew off your head, Jesus has the power to put your head back on. Yes, he does. Our bodies will be resurrected. Until he returns, we we await the final consummation of these things. The text says it twice, we shall be changed. And apparently it will happen in an instant. So we need to get an iron grip on this doctrine. Verse 20, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Well, the first fruits are representative of the whole harvest. It's like a a first sample of of the coming crop. It's the same idea when we read of Christ being the firstborn from the dead or firstborn among many brothers. So there's this solidarity, there's this unity between Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection. They aren't so much uh, two separate events, but, but two episodes of the same event, the beginning and end of the same harvest. So we can say the resurrection of Christ is, is, is from the future. There's been an, an inbreaking of the coming kingdom in this present evil age. So friends, this is why we should be about the Lord's 
business. We have this certain hope. We work because Christ has worked. He has secured victory for us against our greatest foe. So death here is pictured as a hideous enemy, like a scorpion that tortures people with its sting. And sin is death's sting. But the sting has been drawn. And death has been swallowed up. Sin has been conquered in our lives because Jesus is breathing. And one day at his return, all the horrors that flow from sin will finally and completely be vanquished. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. All grief and disease and betrayal and violence and lies and shame and death itself will finally be dealt with. So do you see how this, this, this should help us endure and carry on in the work of the Lord? Paul says, be immovable. You think of Nehemiah when he was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He told his enemies, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. It also means we can dare to do great things for God because Jesus is coming back and the dead will be raised. We can take risks now for him. We can die so that others might live. And that is played out in thousands of decisions across our lifetimes. So listen to this from Revelation 14. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Nothing done in the name of Christ will be lost. Friends, we have work to do. What remains undone in your life? Let's take a few moments to reflect on these things and then I'll pray for us.